The Gospel of John, chapter 1. You can find this on page 5 of your bulletin. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to, at this time, invite Pastor Duke to come on up. If you're just with us for the first time this morning, uh, we as a church are uh, part of a, a family of churches um, in D.C. and beyond. But, um, but every Advent season, we, we as pastors, we all decide we want to work smarter, not harder. Um, and we all prepare one sermon. And then we rotate uh, and we begin to share with one another. And so this morning we had the opportunity for Pastor Duke from Grace Meridian Hill uh, to bring the word to us. He is a great gift to uh, our network. Uh, he is uh, a, a sweet pastor of his community, uh, has really uh, done a wonderful work in the neighborhood in Columbia Heights, and God has been doing a great work through uh, our sister church, Grace Meridian Hill. So it's a great pleasure to have you this morning, brother. And uh, I always like it when you guys get to hear good preaching. So uh, <laughs> praise the Lord. Uh, receive him with an open heart. All right. Good morning, everyone. Well, it is, as always, a joy to be here with you, uh, especially during Advent. And I can see you've got the holidays cooking here. You've got the Advent wreath out. 
You got your Christmas tree. You got Diana Ross on top of your Christmas tree. <laughs> Just telling you what I see, all right? Now, Advent is good. This is part of it, right? It's part of it, right? Advent's one of my favorite times of the year. It's a meaningful time of year. In fact, already this Advent, I, I, I feel like I've rediscovered an old love, one that fills my heart, reassures me that everything's going to be all right. I'm talking about eggnog, of course, right? Had a little bit last night, maybe too much, right? Rediscovering an old love. Well, it's a joy. It's really a joy to uh, celebrate this special time of year when we remember the coming of Christ and his promise to come again. Welcome, especially if you're one who is new to Advent or to the Christian gospel entirely. Pray that your time here is fresh and even life-giving to you. Let's pause and let's pray together. We need to pray. God, we need your help. And so it encourages our hearts that your word calls you the helper. You are eager uh, to open our eyes to see you. You are eager to unplug our ears to hear you. You are eager to make our hearts soft to receive you. So please do all those things by the power of your Holy Spirit now. We open your word. Give us help for our good, but do it most of all for the glory of Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. amen. When I was in the seventh grade, I began to read and fall in love with mystery novels. I don't know if that includes any one of you. I began to read just about every Agatha Christie book that I could get my hands on, Murder on the Orient Express, and then there were none, Roger Ackroyd, Curtin, all these different books. I loved the way that mysteries create suspense. You know, the story starts, and then you have no idea. You have no idea, if you're honest, about what's going on. You've got more questions at that point, then answers. What happened? Uh, who is this person? Who committed the crime? How are they going to figure this one out? And as the story slowly unfolds, the excitement and the tension builds up as you discover new clues. Little by little by little, the whole thing unfolding before your very eyes and ears and your imagination. And then soon enough, you're just dying to flip ahead and to go to the final chapter, uh, you know, just to find out what happened. A couple of times, I'm pretty sure I cheated and I took a peek, right? Looking ahead because you can't wait to find out how the case is solved. Then finally, they make the big reveal, that big moment. It was him. She's the one we were looking for. And finally, with great satisfaction, you close that book, right? The one that you've been reading, finally done. And you say to yourself with a grin, I knew it all along. It was him, even though, of course, you didn't at all. But that's how good mysteries grab a hold of you. 
You know, our passage today is the Apostle John's story of Christmas. Might not seem like it. There's no nativity, no shepherds, no angels, but it's still his way of telling the story of how God and Christ entered this world, the arrival of the Son of God to rescue sinful, broken people like you and me. It's his version of the Christmas story, and it reads like a good mystery novel. See, at first, if you're honest about it, you have no idea what the apostle is talking about. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning of what? And what is this Word? And why are we talking about a Word? Then John begins to drop some clues. Hold on, he's talking about God, apparently. Did you see that? The, the, the mysterious word, hey, look, it's not a thing. It's a person. Uh, wait, here comes another clue. That word came into the world. Then John offers more details. The word he describes as light. Not only light, the word is also life. The word is glory and grace and truth. And then the whole time throughout these paragraphs, he's holding us in suspense, mystery-like suspense as we read these opening verses until finally, like the big reveal at the end of the book, he tells us the answer. I'm talking about Jesus. The word is Jesus. Sorry, forgot to say spoil alert, right? This is how the Apostle John unfolds his version of the story of Christmas, like a, like a mini mystery novel. And the key to the suspense is this strange and mysterious word, word. In fact, when we study the meaning of the word, word here in this passage, what we find is that it begins to unlock for us the very meaning of Christmas itself. What do we learn? Two things. First, that Christmas is a story of intimacy. And then secondly, that Christmas is a story of vulnerability. Christmas is a story of intimacy, and it's a story of vulnerability. A story of intimacy. I mean, of all things, why would John use the word, word, to tell us about the coming of Jesus. What's a word? Words are a form of personal communication, are they not? Kids, a, a, a word is what? A word is what you use to tell somebody about what you feel, about what you're thinking. A word is what gives outward expression to inner thoughts. The other day, my son, he woke up and almost immediately said to me, Daddy, I'm sick. I'm sick, Daddy. I don't want to go to school. I want to stay home because I'm sick. And you don't know how excited I was. Not because he was sick. I'm not that weird. But because he was finally putting words to his physical state of being, it was kind of this breakthrough that he was able to express and articulate, communicate what was going on inside of him. Some of you parents wish your teenagers would do more of that. 
share the inner secrets of their thoughts and hearts. Some of your spouses, some of you spouses wish your spouses would do a little bit more of that. You know, offer some outward expression to their hidden inner thoughts. For I myself, I kind of wish that my wife, when she sends me to Safeway with that grocery list and she asks me to buy cucumbers, that she might tell me, do you need one cucumber or 27 cucumbers? I, I do not know. And you're not answering my text message to tell me in real time. She wants me to read her mind. Listen, here's what John is telling us. That in Jesus, God is giving us a break from being a divine mind reader. Jesus is himself God's communication of himself to the world. That Jesus came into our world 2,000 years ago as a physical, visible self-expression of an otherwise invisible God. That's why it says in verse 18, you heard it, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. Later in John 14, Jesus would say these astonishing words to his disciples. Anyone who has seen me has seen God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way. In the past, God spoke with words to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us a word by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, receive Jesus. And these New Testament writers, you see, are, are just using the language of Scripture itself in describing Jesus as the Word. Because throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, God's speech is God's personal expression. His power going into the world, such that his words themselves are described as creating, as redeeming, as saving. So, for example, in Psalm 107, we hear this, God sent out his word and healed them, his people, and rescued them from the grave. It's like a word that's almost alive. God's word is so active and so charged with life and power, it's almost described as a person. And so it's not out of nowhere that when John wants to tell us about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming into the world as a baby, coming to heal and redeem and save... 
John would describe him as the personal communication of God, the one who makes God known. He calls him the word of God, living and active and saving and redeeming God with us, Emmanuel. And so what does this mean, friends? What does it mean? If you want to know what God is like, I'll say it again, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is thinking, look at and listen to the thoughts of Jesus. We have some of them recorded right here in the Gospel of John, a fine work for you to read through throughout this Christmas season, especially if you've never read it before. If you want to see what God looks like, not in terms of his physical attributes, but rather his moral attributes, his relational attributes, how he speaks to the poor, how he interacts even with the proud, how he loves, look at Jesus. Are you looking at Jesus today? Because there you will see the face of God. Let me be clear about this too, though. John isn't just talking about the communication of, of just facts or ideas about God. This isn't about just a, a, a transfer of information or propositions about God. You see, because words create intimacy. Here's what's interesting. You know, in John's day, this word, word, was actually a, a, a technical term. And in the world of ancient Greek philosophy, the Greek word for word was kind of this abstract, impersonal force that brought order and harmony to the universe. It was, it was kind of a, a rational principle, a sort of cosmic logic, if you will, by which everything in the universe existed. And John is familiar with this usage. He's using familiar terms to connect with the Greek way of thinking, but he's also redefining it and challenging it, too, and he's challenging us. Well, how? Because far too many of us think about God as just a rational principle or an abstract force or just an idea or even an inanimate object. I came across this story recently about a woman who got engaged to her chandelier. It's part of a view and perhaps a disorder that can be called objectophilia, the love of objects. But it's a real thing. In fact, there are whole communities formed around this, people that are relating to objects as though they were persons, indeed even making loyal commitments to such objects. This woman, she first met her fiancé on eBay, gave her a name, Lumiere, and she says it was love at first sight. Uh, the 30-inch wide chandelier was an antique and had to get shipped over from Germany, she waited eagerly in anticipation of 
her arrival. She said, I couldn't stop thinking about her and how beautiful she was. She has such a beautiful shape, and I could really feel the amazing energy coming from her. I knew I needed to find a way to make her mine. Objectophilia. Uh, friends, you, you can shake your heads at that because there is something tragic and pitiful about this, or you might be tempted to laugh, but try this on. It's not too much different from the way that some of us try to relate to God, though we believe him to be a mere object or an impersonal abstract principle. That you say that you know God and you say that you relate to God. You might even say that you pray to God, but when you describe him, he's no better than a divine chandelier. John, by calling the Son of God, the Word of God, the personal communication of God, is using language that's far more richly intimate. God is not an abstract idea. He's not even a theological principle. He's certainly not a vibe. He's a person. In fact, three persons. A God who is himself love, who wants to invite you despite your sin into a loving relationship with himself in what he calls a covenant, love with a promise that he might have a hold of you, even if you might be running the other way, and we all do in one way or another. John calls this Son of God, Jesus, the Word of God, because words create intimacy, don't they? We use words to share our thoughts, our desires, our goals, our personality, our, our, our loyalty. Uh, words create relationship. That's why without such communication, there's no possibility of relationship, is there? It's why if you shut someone out of your life, you give them the silent treatment. You no longer give them the gift of words, which of course is the gift of intimacy. Because self-disclosure, sharing of yourself, communicating, giving your inner thoughts, putting language and form to what is on the inside of you invisibly and making them visible before a person is always an act of love. And Jesus, the Word, is the literal embodiment of God sharing himself personally with a broken world. Do you know the intimacy of God like this? Have you received Jesus as the personal, intimate Word of God? Or are you just keeping him at a distance? Are you paying attention when he discloses the, the, the secret things of his heart which are contained in the Bible? That's what it is. The very mind and the heart of God given to you as a gift. Christmas is a story of divine intimacy. Not to be observed or analyzed at a distance, not even theologically and logically, but to be entered into personally as God has come in Christ to offer himself personally to you. Christmas is a story of intimacy. It's also, we learn by examining this word, word, a story of vulnerability. A story of vulnerability. 
I don't know if you were struck by the first couple of verses in this passage. Even if it might have been a little ambiguous or confusing to you, the way in which John describes this word, amazing descriptions. The word, we're told, is eternal. We're told in verse 1, in the beginning was the word, already in existence, even when the world was made. This is an unmistakable echo of the very first words of the entire Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the word Jesus himself before he came in flesh existed from eternity past. And not only so, he existed on his own. He was self-existing. In the beginning means the word existed before creation. He was In verse 4a, we're told, in him was life. He had life in himself, which means he wasn't dependent upon anybody for nothing. This word, in fact, is God. Verse 1 tells us straight up, the word was God. In verse 18, describing him as the only God. He's invisible, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. He's infinitely powerful, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. He was the giver of life. In him was life, the power of this word. I mean, if you just let these different descriptions come alive in the imagination of your faith, you can just see how vast, infinite, and eternal this word is. At this point in the passage, of course, a mystery as to his personal identity, but do you see the immensity of the vision that John gives us? Because notice where he goes in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, this Word, this eternal Word, the self-existent Word that needs nobody else for meaning or joy or power Word. The infinite Word, the invisible Word, the He was God Word became vulnerable, became human flesh. What's interesting is that there are other words that the Apostle John could have used to describe Jesus' entrance into this world. It could have said he took on a body, could have said that he became a human being, but instead uses the fleshiest of flesh word in describing him as becoming flesh. It got me thinking about that word even in this past week, flesh. Thinking about it when my son came to me at one point with a bloody fingertip asking for a Band-Aid. I don't even know how he got it. I never do. But there it was, an easy scrape on his finger, now bleeding. Or looking at the red rashy skin on my baby's underside. Or looking at my daughter struggling with a paper cut. 
talking to my kids about the dangers of a knife that was dangling on the edge of a table and looking at my own frail body, mostly when looking in the mirror, realizing that the years have gone by fast. Realizing, my goodness, our flesh is so weak. Our flesh is so woundable, so vulnerable, so breakable, so terrible. Dear friends, the eternal, cosmic, indescribable, invincible word became flesh. And he did this to speak to us of his sympathy. You see, here's good news. What this means is the one who came born as a baby in a manger, vulnerable like you and me and growing up and living a life like we live in this broken world with a frail body, he knows what it's like to be hurt. Are you hurt today? Jesus is near to you. It means he knows what it's like to be assaulted and abused. Do you need his comfort today? He knows what it feels like to have a broken heart, to have a broken body. He knows what you feel like when you're exhausted. Some of you feel vulnerable today, financially, emotionally, maybe even physically. Do you know the vulnerable one who meets you in your vulnerability? This is Jesus, who doesn't scorn you or distance himself from the weak, but draws near the vulnerable people like you and me. It speaks to his own vulnerability, the way in which he assumed vulnerability in love. Because here's the mystery of Christmas, you know, the infinite and eternal Son of God made himself breakable, made himself fragile, came into this world as a helpless baby in a manger. And all this, of course, was intentional. Climax of Christmas love was found over 30 years later after his birth when Jesus, in his hurtability and his vulnerability and his breakability, was utterly broken on the cross because he suffered and he died for our sin. And it wasn't a vulnerability of victimhood, was it? It was a chosen vulnerability. You see, that's what it makes it love. Because he did it, he chose to be hurt infinitely to save you. To take the punishment that was yours and mine. Jesus chose to suffer for our sins, chose to become breakable, that the judgment of God might never again break us. This is the literal embodiment of the love of God. So we invite you, of course, to embrace this story, uh, to embrace this reality of the holy, vulnerable one who loved you so. And to embrace the mystery of what happens when that story becomes part of our own. 
Because you see, when we embrace that story, when we start to take it into our hearts, then we ourselves begin to offer vulnerable love to others just like him. Isn't this appropriate for the so-called Christmas season? For this not to be a time in which you only seek your own good, but that you actually seek the good of others just like Christ where you seek not to present yourself as strong and able and put together, but rather that you bear your weaknesses and vulnerabilities in such a way that you invite other fellow vulnerable ones into common fellowship as those who together need the grace of God for strength. You might be a people that begin to let down your barriers and your defenses Because, beloved, let's understand that we ourselves find ourselves in a deep age of fear and self-preservation, of protecting ourselves and our rights and our possibility of flourishing for myself and my own and my family and my tribe and Yet here is Jesus going in the opposite direction. This is the story of Christmas, indeed the story of the gospel. God pursued intimacy with others, with, in fact, sinners, by embracing vulnerability. Which means this, this is Christmas love. Not to protect yourself or to live to preserve yourself, but like Jesus to assume vulnerability for the sake of protecting the vulnerable. To assume hurt ability upon yourself in order to love and serve those who are most vulnerable around you. Where are they? Right next to you even where you sit now, even on your home blocks, even in your city, even in your workplaces. Sometimes you need a cross barrier. Sometimes you need to find holy vulnerability in places where you might not naturally find yourself. Love takes you to strange places. Indeed, like love took even the Son of God, the Word Himself, down here. Will you travel towards vulnerability in love? Christmas is a story of intimacy. It's also a story of chosen vulnerability. Intimacy through vulnerability. First between ourselves and God, and then also between ourselves and neighbor. That's who God is. Do you know him as such? This is the great mystery of the word revealed to us. The word became flesh. And so the apostle made the big reveal. It was him, Jesus. He's the one that we were looking for. And he really is this Jesus. And just like a good mystery novel, I pray, This Christmas, you'll close the book when you're done and you'll say to yourself, maybe with a grin, he is. And somehow, I knew it all along. Will you know him more? Will you receive him more? 
with intimacy and in love, embracing vulnerability. That's Christmas, folks. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Give us grace first to receive you as you are, for who you are, and then by the power of the transforming grace of the gospel that you would make us more like you this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.